0: What a great way to begin the year. 15, 16 baptisms last week. We've had six today. What an exciting thing. God is on the move and He's doing something. I think we are just at the beginning of watching God do something super special here at OCC. That's what we're celebrating, right? Yeah. Hey, let's pray for them. God, it is so exciting to watch people surrender their life to you to find brand new forever life with you. God, we thank you for all those who've made that decision today, all those who made the decision, uh, previously this year, last week, and even in the days before that. God, thank you for the encouragement that gives to so many of us who have been around walking with you for a while. Uh, it's good to know you are still on the move, that we still see you moving in our midst. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you that this is a loving place, a welcoming place, an inviting place. In a place where you are pouring out your favor and your spirit. God, we pray that this is only the beginning. So God, would you use us as your people to do all that you've called us to do, to be all you've called us to be, to help them, uh, those who've recently found new life in you, to help them be all you've created and called them to be as your sons and daughters. And God, would you use them to help this church be all you've called her to be as a beacon of hope, In this world of darkness, we pray this in your name for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Well, Chuck sat on a stump, contentedly reading his book. So when his friend asked if he wanted a big hug, Chuck unenthusiastically said, sure. Now you can imagine his surprise when instead of receiving a big hug, a large bug was thrown on Chuck's lap. Well, Chuck flipped, literally, ah, didn't know what to do. And in that moment, with his reaction, he introduced what would become his catchphrase for what's been the last 70 plus years, good grief. Good grief, Lucy, I thought you said hug. So that little misunderstanding introduced a phrase that if you are a Charlie Brown fan, you know this phrase shows up. Quite often in Chuck's worst moments. But is there such a thing as good grief? Can grieving really be good? Well, according to Jesus, not only can grief be good, it can actually lead to blessing. We're in week three of a series we're calling The Blessed Life, where we are unpacking what Jesus said about blessing. I think most people would say, yeah, I want God to bless me. But in order to know what that looks like and how to receive the blessing of God, we got to go to the author and giver of blessings to God himself. And so Jesus, in the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, made several blessing statements. We call them the Beatitudes, and we are just unpacking those. And last week, we looked at the first of those blessing statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we saw that the rest of the blessings, in fact, the rest of that sermon and the entirety of Jesus' ministry hinges on this concept. For us to recognize that before God, we have spiritual poverty. We are spiritually bankrupt before God and we have nothing to offer. So we are in desperate need of Jesus to both rescue us and lead us. In fact, Jesus rescues us by leading us. And it's only then when we recognize this and when we come to God That we can actually enter into his kingdom. It's only by recognizing our poverty before him. And our need for him. That we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well Jesus follows that phrase with this blessing. He says blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Now that may seem contradictory or ironic to you. That there's blessing in mourning. Blessed are those who mourn who grieve. Is Jesus talking about those who've recently lost someone they love? Is he talking about someone who's had a, a a disaster or a financial downfall, a health trouble? Is he talking about someone who's experienced some really bad relationship issues? Or is he just referring to somebody does this apply even to the person who's just had a really terrible, bad, awful, very no good day, right? Maybe a day like a guy who a Florida newspaper reported on several years ago. A man was working on his motorcycle on the back patio of his Florida home. At one point, he went to check the progress to see how he was doing on repairing the engine. So he revved the bike, but accidentally kicked it into gear. And still holding the handles, it lunged forward and pulled him through the window door on the back of their home. Shattered that door and the other doors nearby, coming to rest in the living room. So I've heard the commotion. She ran into the room to find her husband laying on the floor, bruised and bloodied, broken glass, broken doors, a broken motorcycle. She called the paramedics who rushed to the home. And they assured her, yeah, he's pretty banged up, but he's going to be okay. These are mostly flesh wounds. And they load him up, took him to the hospital. And so knowing he'd be okay... She determined she should take some towels and mop up the blood and gasoline from the floor before heading to the hospital to follow the ambulance. So she did that, but in her frantic state, not thinking clearly, she threw them in the bathtub and the toilet and then rushed out of the house. Well, later that morning, that early afternoon, she returned home with her husband who had received several stitches and lots of bandages. He was pretty bruised up, not least of which on his ego, Upon entering the house, he looked upon the disaster scene, his broken motorcycle, the broken doors, the broken glass, his broken ego. He was sad and despondent, so he decided to have a smoke in the bathroom. He went into the bathroom, sat down, lit up. His wife, hearing the commotion, rushed to the bathroom to find her husband laying on the ground, pants down with several burns on his rather sensitive areas. She quickly called the paramedics once again. The same paramedics arrived at their house a short time later with numerous questions about what was going on in that home that day. They all had a good laugh at that man's expense. He was not laughing at all. As the paramedics were carrying him on the stretcher down their sloped driveway, one of the men stumbled, slipped, lost his grip, tipped the stretcher, and the man broke his arm on the way to the ambulance. Some of you are thinking, man, that's a really bad day. (laughs) Some of you, though, are thinking that doesn't even come close to comparing to your bad days. And I hope your 24 is off to a better start than what that guy experienced. But some of you, some of you would long for a day that's only that bad. Some of you have experienced the loss of someone you love. And it has shaken you to the core. And it is right and even necessary for you to grieve, for you to experience the sorrow. You know, God gave us the gift of tears for a reason. Some of you are navigating some painful relationship changes. Somebody who you were close to, who you care about, no longer cares for you and no longer desires to be close to you. And that's shaking you up. Some of you are navigating difficult job changes and job loss and financial insecurities. Some of you, you face some health hurdles that seem insurmountable. Some of you, you just have a nagging sadness, a depression that you can't shake and you can't explain and other people just can't understand. And to all of that, God desires to comfort. God cares for you. God cares about you. God longs to comfort you in your sorrow, and your grief, and your troublesome days. And one of the ways God longs to do that most is for you to experience his compassion through his people. On some of my worst days on some of the most troublesome seasons in my life, God has shown up most often and most visibly, most experientially through his people. The Bible refers to us as the body of Christ. And I've seen that play out at some of the most difficult seasons. With the people who I was in small group with, who had gotten to know me well and taken the time to get to know me and get to know about my situation and get to know about my troubles and my trials, they were the ones to show up. They were the ones to sit with me in sorrow. They were the ones where I could look into their eyes and see the eyes of God looking back. I could feel the hand of God upon me as they would just offer a simple hug. I could feel the gentle nudge of God and his foot as they nudged me forward into the right decisions. It's often through God's people that God will comfort us most experientially. And that's why groups are such an important thing for us. That's why they're such an important part of my story. And I know for so many of you, an important part of your story. Now, I can point to numerous places throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, Verse after verse that speaks of how God longs to comfort us and heal us. How God longs to help us and rescue us from difficulty and disaster and pain and trial. How God seeks to comfort us when we grieve. But, but, that is not the point of this passage. That's actually not what Jesus is referring to when he says blessed are those who mourn. Now, is it true that God will comfort those who grieve for any number of things? Yes, yes, you will be comforted. But what he's referring to here, this blessing of comfort actually builds on the blessing that precedes it and the attitude of heart. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We learn the poor in spirit is recognizing our depravity before God, our need for God. That we are totally dependent upon God. So this idea of poverty of spirit brings with it the next iteration of a grieving for our sin. When we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt before God because of our sin, we grieve what our sin has done to us and to others. What it's done to our relationship between us and God, our relationship with ourselves, how it has wrecked us, what it's done to our relationship with those who matter most to us, the collateral damage in their lives... And so mourning in this context is sorrow over sin. That's what Jesus is speaking of. Sorrow over sin. Now I know many of you, when you woke up today, you were really hoping the preacher was going to preach on sin today. Like, man, I hope I get a message on sin. Some of you, you know, you're getting ready. Your honey says, hey, what do you think Fitz will preach on it? "I, I I don't I hope it's one of two things. I hope it's either sin or money. Like I hope I hope the preacher talks about one of those two things. Sin or, or maybe he'll combine it. The sin that I commit with my money. Maybe, maybe I'll get lucky. Now I know that's like no one ever saying that, right? But you need to know we will talk about those things. We'll talk about sin. We'll talk about money. We'll actually talk about a lot of subjects that might make us uncomfortable. In fact, you need to know that one of the ways that we view preaching here is that preaching should afflict those who are comfortable and comfort those who are afflicted. That if you're in a bad space, that God's word should bring you comfort and bring you out of that. But if you think you're doing just fine, then God probably wants to do some tweaking and challenge you a bit to unsettle you a little bit, to draw you even nearer to him. And we're gonna preach on all kinds of subjects all the time that might make us uncomfortable but we'll preach what God's word says because we believe that's what we need to do. And that's what we need to hear. In fact, we believe as a leadership here at OCC that the good news of the gospel is really only best understood when we realize how bad our situation is. And the worse we understand, right? When we understand the fullness of our sin, and we'll never fully understand the fullness of our sin. But when we understand the distance between our sinfulness and God's holiness the better the good news seems. The more reason we have to celebrate and find joy in our salvation because we know just how much God has done to bridge that gap. So when we recognize that we are sinners and we are poor in spirit, that we have a spiritual poverty before God, and we are willing to then grieve over our own sin, then we have room to be comforted by God. We have room for God to do something special in that space. And I love what Jesus says. He says, those who grieve their sin, those who mourn and have sorrow over their sin are not condemned, but comforted. God doesn't look at us and say, you nasty evil people, be gone with you. But when we turn to him, he welcomes us in. He comforts us, he embraces us. When we come to God and acknowledge our wrongdoing, he is not eager to punish us. God is a good and loving father. He's not looking for ways to Lay the smack down on his kids. He's looking for ways to comfort us, to heal us, to help us, to rescue us. He is not eager to punish. He is eager to comfort and rescue. That's who our God is. And one of the best examples we have of this, of this grieving over our sin, is in the life of David. If you are newer to the Bible, you probably recognize David. And we sang about it in one of the songs earlier this morning. David, who took on Goliath. David, a young man, taking on a giant, seasoned soldier and winning. But you may not know David went on to be king over God's people, Israel. And as king, he would defend Israel against other armies and other people who wanted to invade. And usually he would lead the troops in a battle. But on at least one occasion, when he should have been leading the troops... He sent the troops out, but he stayed at home, and when he stayed back, he actually looked upon a gal, and her name was Bathsheba, and when he should have turned away, he kept gazing, and he had her brought to the palace, and with his political position, she could not have said no, and he did things with her, and she was a married woman that he should not have done, and she became pregnant, and so he determined to cover it up. determined to pin the pregnancy on her husband but he wouldn't have anything to do with that so David had him killed and then he went on like no one knew what had happened so when the prophet Nathan came to David and literally put his finger in David's chest and told him what's up then David wised up and David went to God and listen we all need friends like Nathan somebody who will put the finger in our chest and tell us what's up to help us wise up to motivate us to get to God And that's what Nathan did, and that's what David did. And David then expressed his grief over his sin and what we have as Psalm 51. And we're going to take a look at the entirety of that psalm. I encourage you to listen to the psalmist's heart. Listen to what David says. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Do you ever feel like you? Now listen, all of us sin every day. But have you had some more grievous sins in your life that you feel have stained you? Maybe they've stained a season of life. They've stained some memories. They've stained some events. They've made your memory of those things impure. You need to be washed. David goes on. Says, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Do you have any any haunting memories of your sinful decisions in the past? Maybe for some of you not that long ago. I'll be honest. There's some seasons in my life that when I reflect back, they're haunting. They're disturbing. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, God. I have done what is evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. God, you are the fair judge of everyone. You alone are holy. And what you determine to do with me in your court of justice is fair and right. I have sinned. I have rebelled. It's against you. But, God, I'm begging you, don't blot me out, but blot out my sin. Erase my sin and give me a new start, God. He continues on. For I was born a sinner. Yeah, from the moment my mama conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. So purify me from my sins, and then I will be clean. Wash me, and only you can make me whiter than snow. He goes on. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Yeah, when you see me, don't look at me through the lens of my sin. But remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. We'll see Jesus echo this in the Sermon on the Mount. Later in that sermon, Jesus will teach us that our sin is not so much about just what we've said with our mouths or done with our hands. But it begins in the heart. That we don't need to just change our behavior. We need a heart change. We need a heart transplant. We need a heart softening. Because sin originates within and so we need God to give us a new heart. It says, don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you. Then, oh, then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you also. Forgive me for shedding blood, O oh God who saves. Don't you love that phrase, O oh God who saves? Friend, I encourage you in your prayers. To use phrases like that when you speak to God. Oh God who saves. Oh God who is good. Oh God who loves me. I encourage you, speak in those terms to the God who is. It says, Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. You could tell he had stopped singing, he had stopped praising. Isn't that what happens when our sin gets the best of us? It gets hard. To sing praise to God. We come and JC was talking about it earlier. You know, man, you know, we want to sing here. Sometimes there's a blockage to the blessing. When we have sin that we are aware of and we've not dealt with it, it stands between us and God. David says, I I want that gone with and, and I'm going to be able to praise you again and sing your forgiveness. He goes on in this to say, unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you yet again. You don't desire a sacrifice or I would give it. You don't want just a burnt offering. If it says, listen, it's not just about coming into the house of the Lord, not just for us in our context, not just coming to church and checking the box, well, I attended church, or I said a prayer, or I read my Bible, or I listened to the Christian radio, or I gave some money to church, and now I'm all good with God. It's as if it were only that easy. No, the reality is, the sacrifice you desire, O oh Lord, is a broken spirit. You won't reject a broken and repentant heart. So look with favor on Zion and help her Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then, then you'll be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. He says, once we understand that we need cleansing from you, that there's nothing we can do to earn that, to get that, to, to warrant that, but you freely forgive us, then we bring the offering to you, not to try and get something from you, but simply in gratitude for what you have already done. What a beautiful prayer of repentance. What a beautiful song that can be sung from this. But I know, I know if we sit on this long enough, a lot of us will think, but wait, 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 wait. David, yeah, he deserved to pray that prayer. Dude was a scoundrel, man. He was scandalous. I'm not that bad. Adultery, murder, cover-ups, abuse of political power. Like, no, like I'm not that. Because this is what we do, isn't it? Like we will compare ourselves to other sinners who seem worse than us. They've sinned worse than we have. The reality is they haven't. They've sinned differently than us, but no worse than us. And the reality is we always find somebody who seems worse to compare ourselves to. I mean, you get the go-tos, Stalin, Hitler. I mean, yeah, you know, Dahmer. Pretty easy. I don't hear many people saying, well, I'm not as bad of a sinner as Billy Graham. (laughs) It just doesn't happen, right? Right? I'm not as bad as that really kind person over there. No, we always want to look down. We never look up. Uh, but the reality is we shouldn't compare ourselves to any other sinner. We should compare ourselves to God and his standard of holiness. And when we do that, I'm I'm just going to go on a limb and say that most of us probably haven't done too good. <laughs> most of us probably don't have a very good track record of things with like avoiding stuff like lying and lusting and laziness. Idolatry and anger and hatred and coveting and greed and gossip and The list goes on for quite some while, right? Mm. One preacher said it this way. He said, we rationalize everything so we don't have to feel bad about anything. We'll rationalize all of it so that we don't feel bad about any of it. And that's what we do, right? We'll compare ourselves to somebody worse or we'll just call our sin by another name. We'll clean it up. We'll tidy it up. We'll Give ourselves some reason that it's legit for us to do that. But the poor in spirit, they don't. They don't do that. They mourn their sin. They grieve it. They call their sin what it is, sin. And so they don't dress it up and put another name on it. But when they become aware of it, when their Nathan puts the finger in the chest and helps them wise up with the what's up, they'll go to God. So that reluctance or refusal to share what we have with other people, that may be wise stewardship. But there's a really good chance that really often that may be selfishness and greed. That may be sin. Staying home and doing the things that make you happy and help you relax and be all comfortable instead of helping somebody else who's in need, that might be self-care. There's a good chance on a lot of those times it's religious really selfishness and that's self-destructive and that's sin. Anger at people who do wrong. There's some legitimacy there. We even see that throughout the Psalms and other places in Scripture. But wishing bad things upon them instead of praying for them, instead of hoping that they would repent, instead of doing what we can to help them find and follow Jesus. Well, that's not righteous indignation that's spiritual arrogance, thinking we're better than them. That's malice. That's sin. Making jokes and talking negatively and condescendingly about groups of people, homeless people, rioters, disadvantaged people, that's not patriotism. That's not joking around. That's not just having a little fun. A social media post is dehumanizing, it's degrading, it's despicable. It's sin. Sharing that prayer request with all the details about the other person's messy situation, especially when they're not there. That's not loving. That's not prayerful. That's not caring. That's gossip. That's slander. That's divisiveness. That's sin. I could go on. We'd be here all day, but I think you get the point. We all have a tendency to think more highly of our own sins while we think very little of others. But those who mourn over sin, they don't do that. They will grieve the sins of this world. They'll grieve the brokenness of this world. They are saddened by the hurts and the wounds handed to other people who are seemingly more innocent to the least and the last and the lost and the left outs, to the kids and the widows and the orphans and the outsiders and the foreigners who've been forgotten and neglected and abandoned and abused, they will grieve over that. But of all the sin that the poor in spirit grieve, they grieve the most over their own. That the poor in spirit will grieve the most over their own sin. Knowing that their sin, no less than anyone else's, drove the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus, knowing that their sin hammered the nails in the cross, knowing that it was my anger, that it was my greed, that it was my pride, that it was my lust, that it was my refusal to forgive, my refusal to seek reconciliation, you name it, It was your sin and my sin that gripped the hammer and drove the nail. Broken. That's what God desires for us. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. See, it's only when we admit this, only when we admit That it was our sin, individually my sin, that put him there. Only then can we understand what it means to be comforted. Only then will we be ready to receive the love and the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness of God that allows us to be comforted. Only then are we ready to be comforted as we grieve the cost of our sin. Only then, in the sorrow of our sin, are we able to receive the comfort of God. Receiving that with those same nail-pierced hands, Jesus stretched out his arms to show us how much he loved us. With that same nail-pierced hand, he reached out to take hold of you, to save you to rescue you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Sorrow over our sin should cause us to run to God and not from him. See, sorrow over sin is where repentance begins. And repentance is running from our sin and running to God. And notice, it's running. That when we see sin, we don't dabble and play and tour around. We run from it and run to the Savior. And that is where the sorrow begins. And that's where the blessing is found. That it's there that we find the reality of what I think good old Charlie Brown has known all along that there really is some goodness in our grief. See, that repentance is met not with condemnation, but with comfort. What we read in Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if they'll seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that's repentance. What will God do? I'll hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will punish them for eternity? No. When they run to me, I'll forgive them. And I will restore them. Repentance is met not with punishment, but friendship. Not with condemnation, but with comfort. Repentance is met with a restoration of joy. I love how David said it in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When we know how wicked we are. Then we know how beautiful the forgiveness of God is, and that is measured with joy. There is joy to be found. The comfort of God is the joy of salvation, even though we don't deserve it. Hmm. And the poor in spirit, they know that this begins with them. You know, I've I've heard this talked about quite a bit over the years. All the people, if if the people of America would just simply turn to God and they use this scripture, then our land would be better. Well, maybe, maybe. But notice, let's go back to middle school grammar for just a moment. Notice the pronouns. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, who's he talking to? Well, in our context, that's the church. Anybody who wears the label of Christian, anyone who would say, yes, I am a Christ follower, that's us. If we would pray and seek God's face, and if we would turn from our wicked ways, then God will hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and restore our land. Now this restoration of land, let's get clear on this. This is not a geopolitical nation state. This is what we unpacked in week one of this series, where the kingdom of God is anywhere that Jesus it's claimed as king. So when we acknowledge that Jesus is king, a land is restored. The kingdom is restored right there. So when you declare Jesus as king over your life, your land is restored. That's what that means. And wouldn't it be amazing if the world saw God's people live this out? If instead of complaining about all the ills of all the people who don't follow God in our nation, if the world around us saw God's people get really serious about dealing with our sin, if we were broken, if we were repentant, if we grieved our sin, and the world saw that the people who follow Jesus grieved their own sin first and foremost, more than pointing a finger at anybody else, what might that do? in this world what message might that send if the people who complain about the church and think christianity's a bunch of bogus bulwarky if they saw us get really serious about our faith and really serious about our sin and grieve first our own and turn from our own wickedness what might that do to bring revival see see the poor in spirit no that the revival that God wants them to experience most never begins out there with those people. Last year, at Asbury University, following what the preacher said was a rather average sermon, revival broke out on that college campus. College students got serious about their faith, they stuck around, and what lasted for hours turned into days, turned into weeks of students repenting of their sin and worshiping God and turning to Him and getting really serious about their faith. And people from across the state and across the nation and across the globe traveled to Wilmore, Kentucky, in the middle of nowhere, just south of Lexington, traveled to this little tiny town, to a little tiny Christian college, to witness what God was doing in the lives of these college students. And those students were encouraged. And everyone who went there was encouraged. But I tell you what, as encouraging as that is, the revival God wants most for you to witness and experience is not something like that. It's not a bunch of college students getting serious about their faith. It's looking in the mirror and getting serious about yours. The revival God wants you to experience most does not begin out there with anyone else but right here in your heart. From that's what God wants for us. So you want to be blessed, then get serious. You want to be blessed, look in your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to expose the places where sin resides. The sin that you have made your friend, the sin you have dressed up and called by another name, the sin you have justified to remove the guilt, the sin that you have fed and nurtured the sin that is killing you. Allow God to expose that and then surrender it and allow him to remove that, to break that stronghold in your life. Each week here at OCC, we celebrate communion. When you came in today, you were able to grab the communion elements. Communion is a moment where we reflect back on Jesus' time in the upper room with his disciples. For those of you online, you can go ahead and get your juice and your bread or whatever you might have available. And for those of you online, I hope you're staying warm. (laughs) But communion is a time where we look back to reflect on what God has done. We also look back to reflect on what we have done and why we need what Jesus has done. It's a time when we look at what God is up to right now and also a time when we look at how much we still need him right now. And it's also a time that we look ahead with joyful anticipation of what will come. It's a time when we grieve over our sin, but we delight in our salvation. It's a time of mixed emotion, of sorrow and celebration. And so I encourage you in a moment, we're going to pray and then I'm going to give you some time to silently reflect and then We'll take and eat and drink together. And I'll close this with a bit of prayer. But at this time of reflection, I encourage you to allow the prayer of Psalm 139 to be your prayer this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know all my anxious thoughts. Point out any wickedness in me that is offensive to you. And lead me along the path of your forever life. Friend, take this moment. Allow God to point out whatever you need to surrender. Oh God, we grieve our need to be reminded. We grieve how easily we forget, how easily we neglect. And we grieve our sin. God, as we hold the bread that reminds us of your body broken for us, we're on the brink of being overwhelmed with sorrow we don't deserve but God you turn our sorrow into celebration with your forgiveness with your love with your mercy so in this moment with deep gratitude we take and we eat and we thank you and with this cup a cup not of suffering, not of sorrow, but a cup of celebration, a cup of life, a cup of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness. We celebrate with great joy that you have given us joy in our salvation, that we do not stand condemned before you, but we are forgiven, we are free. We are new and we have brand new life in you, Jesus. We thank you. And so with this cup, we take and we drink to the glory of our one and only God, our Savior, Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Let us stand, let us sing, and let us use this word, this song, as a prayer of celebration, church.